Hi, everyone. I'm Father Gravy, and this is the Breakfast Podcast. In this episode, we're going to look at the Taj Mahal and talk about loss, love, and life after death. Over the course of many years and much travel, I visited lots of tombs. Many of them are, of course, religious in nature. All of the apostles, lots of saints. Some are of historic figures, Washington, Napoleon, Gandhi. Other tombs are less famous for who's inside them than for the structure itself. I think of the Taj Mahal, for example. Few people could name the person buried inside for whom it was built, but it's one of the most iconic buildings in the world. Visiting it was sort of an out-of-body experience. I had seen pictures of it countless times, And now, here it is, the real thing. And it didn't disappoint. It's enormous and beautiful, even more so than I expected. At any angle, at any distance, at any time of day, there's some different aspect to appreciate and marvel at. Some years ago, a priest friend from England came to visit me for a week. It was his first time in the United States. He was really taken with New York, all the famous sights, and he said at one point, I feel like I'm walking in a movie. All these places that he had seen in countless films, Times Square and Central Park and Rockefeller Center, here it is in living color. It was like that with the Taj Mahal. By way of background, the Taj Mahal was built in the 1600s by the Mughal emperor to entomb his wife, who died in childbirth. It's a symbol of love and loss. The emperor's pining for his dead wife, and that can be seen in the ethereal quality that pervades the whole complex. The building often seems to blend with the sky itself, joining heaven and earth. The sky is also reflected in the many pools surrounding the building, themselves set in an elaborate landscape meant to evoke the gardens of paradise. So, what does a Muslim tomb in a Hindu country have to say to us as Catholics? Well, it brings us to a tomb that's not so visually stunning, but that's far more important, because it's empty. And that tomb, of course, is the Holy Tomb, or Holy Sepulchre of Jesus. It's my favorite place on earth. The resurrection is so familiar to us. Even many non-Christians are at least aware of our belief that Jesus rose from the dead. It's one of the first things we learn as small children— And it's so familiar that we can forget just what a shocking claim it is. There is nothing like it. To say that not some mythological figure, but a real historical person who really died, rose from the dead, not just came back to life. Jesus brought people back to life, Lazarus most notably, but they resumed their life and would die again, once and for all. No, Jesus rose in a whole new way. Death has no more power over him. He exists now on a completely different plane. When you read about the appearances of the risen Christ in the Gospels, there's a common occurrence. The disciples don't recognize him right away. There's something that gives it away. He says their name, or breaks bread, or performs some miracle. But why don't they know it's him just by looking at him? After all, they had spent years in his close company. I think this speaks to the radical transformation that he underwent. Let me give what might be a silly example. 
Have you ever seen those makeovers that people do when they bring in these professionals and give a different haircut and clothes and maybe some dieting and exercise? And then they bring the person out and the audience gasps and applauds. You see the before and after photos side by side, and you can hardly believe it's the same person. After a moment, you say, oh, yes, I see that it's so-and-so, but I never would have recognized her. I think that's what it was like with the risen Christ. He's still himself. He still has a real body. This is no ghost. He wants the disciples to touch his wounds, which are now the trophies of his victory. He eats in front of them, walks with them. But there's also something new and different. He can appear and disappear at will, walk through closed doors. He transcends earthly limits of time and space. It's a human body, but a glorified body, and no longer bound to this world. That's a crucial fact to keep in mind, that the resurrection really happened. The body that died on the cross and was buried in the tomb is alive. Sometimes people try to explain away the resurrection with platitudes like, Jesus lives on in the hearts and minds of his followers. But that's not unique. The real fact and power of the resurrection changed the apostles in ways that mere remembrances don't. That doesn't cause the complete change in someone that we see with the apostles. And we have to account for that. That these men and women, mostly simple, unsophisticated, often cowardly, experienced a radical transformation after the resurrection. They all went boldly to the ends of the earth proclaiming this good news. As crazy as it sounds, Jesus is alive. You're not going to believe it, but you have to, because it's true. And ultimately, their testimony is of the utmost importance. I often say you could boil the entire preaching of the apostles down to three words. We saw him. Everything hinges on the resurrection. It's the ultimate proof that everything that Jesus said and did and claimed to be is real and true, that he is God with us, the author of life and death, that everything is subject to him. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then, as St. Paul says, we are the most foolish of men. Jesus is then nothing more than an ethical teacher with disturbing illusions of divinity who ran afoul of public opinion. If archaeologists ever discover the body of Jesus, it's game over. Close the churches, it's all a lie. Of course, we know that won't happen. The body of Jesus is not here. That's why the apostles' preaching is so important. You and I have not seen the risen Christ. We don't have the proof before our eyes. But these followers of Jesus claim they did. And so we find ourselves in the position of something like jury members. We weren't there at the scene. We didn't see it ourselves. What we have are witnesses and their testimony. Is it credible? Does it make the most sense over other possible explanations? Which scenario is more likely? That these people are all in on the same lie or underwent the same mass psychosis to which they devoted their whole lives, tirelessly traveling and preaching, and for which they endured excruciating pain and death? Or that, as remarkable as it sounds, it's actually true, that they really did see him, and that that accounts for everything that transpired afterwards. So what's the verdict? In civil cases, the threshold is a preponderance of evidence, that even if it's 51% to 49, 
one explanation is more likely than the other. In criminal cases, the threshold is even higher, beyond a reasonable doubt. I would argue that the resurrection meets even that higher threshold, that it's not reasonable to doubt the testimony of the apostles and eyewitnesses. These were not crazy people. They are credible, and their story is identical and consistent. To doubt or deny what they claim raises even more questions and makes less sense. And if they're right and what they say is true, then it changes everything. It took the early church time to absorb just what it meant. We who have grown up familiar with Christianity, maybe even just breathing in the fumes of a post-Christian age, have an at least general awareness of life after death. But for the ancients, it was inconceivable. Nothing was more final than the tomb. So to claim that someone could come back to life and live forever, that death was not the last word, that took time to absorb. And while the apostles' testimony is paramount, I would claim that we do have something more, that in a way, we can see it ourselves. You may have heard of the Shroud of Turin. It's probably the most famous and controversial relic in the world. It has long been revered as the burial shroud of Jesus, a long linen cloth that's mentioned in all four Gospels. Critics will dismiss it as a medieval forgery. Small fragments of the shroud were subject to radiocarbon dating in 1988, and the results said that the cloth dates to the 13th or 14th centuries. Critics felt vindicated. A medieval hoax exposed, a superstition debunked. But not so fast. There were lots of problems with the testing itself, basic controls that weren't followed, but that's beyond our scope right here. Similar to the resurrection itself, if the shroud were a medieval forgery, it raises more questions than it answers. The body is anatomically precise, meaning that the supposed artist would have employed a skill set centuries ahead of his time. The image of the body is no known pigmentation and does not penetrate or seep into the fibers of the cloth. It's not paint. The blood flow and coagulation is scientifically exact. It also breaks in some important ways from popular depictions of the crucifixion. For example, the nails go through the man's wrists, not the palms of his hands. We now know that's precisely how Romans nailed people to a cross, so that the wrist bone can support the suspended body. Most intriguing, though, is that the image is a perfect photographic negative. For centuries, people saw only a faint image of the crucified man. When photography was invented, someone took a picture of the face on the shroud. As the photograph was being developed, he looked at the negative and was stunned. It's a positive image of the face. In other words, the image on the shroud is a photographic negative. All the light is reversed. It's only when we saw a negative of that image that it made sense. So the supposed forger would have also have to have perfectly understood and executed the mechanics of photography some 600 years before it was invented. But why is the image a photographic negative? A theory I find most compelling is that the moment of the resurrection unleashed this unbelievable energy blast, a flash of intense light that left the image on the cloth. In other words, it captures the very moment of the resurrection as the first photograph in the history of the world. The resurrection, though, isn't just about Jesus. It is for us as well. If we share with Christ in his passion, dying to ourselves and to this world, 
we will share in his triumph, in his risen life. That life begins at the moment of death, when the soul is able to see God face to face. Death, though, remains unnatural. To be human is to be body and soul, and death remains literally an out-of-body experience. We're in a state of suspension, waiting to be restored and whole once again. That happens at the second coming, when all the dead are raised up. The reunion of soul and body will add to the glory of the saints in heaven. It will add to the pains of the damned in hell. That we will have our bodies in heaven, as Jesus now has his and Mary hers, shows us that heaven is not some state of mind, but a real place, beyond the realm of this universe for sure. But we will spend all eternity recognizing, embracing, and loving those who have gone before us and come after, the saints, our loved ones, dear friends we haven't even met yet. All of that in the love of God, which never gets old. That's why we as Catholics venerate relics. To many non-Catholics it can seem weird and even macabre, but we believe that this saint's body, part of which we have here, will be reunited with its soul in heaven. It's like a promissory note, an act of faith. The resurrection is real for us too. For the early church, those were the two essential truths, that Jesus is risen and we will be too. We can lose sight of just how new and shocking that message is. We need to make sure it's not background noise or spiritual wallpaper. It's the heart of our faith, and it should inform everything we think and say and do, at every moment living in the light of the resurrection, as excited and on fire as the first apostles were, living in this good news now for the real life that awaits us then. The Roman poet Horace once wrote, Non omnis moriar, I shall not wholly die. Horace realized that he would live on in his poetry, that his memory would long outlive him. The Mughal emperor couldn't bring back his wife from the dead, but he showed his love in one of the most magnificent tombs ever built. We all instinctively grasp that death is wrong, that it shouldn't be that way. But what can we do about it? Well, nothing. But God can, and he did. If the Taj Mahal is a monument to a lost love, the Holy Sepulchre is about a love brought back to life. Except that we're the ones who were dead, with no way back. So God, who mourned the death of the human race through sin, wouldn't give it the last word. He really did bridge heaven and earth, with a tomb also set in a garden. The tomb, though, was for him, but not for long. He rose from it so that we could rise as well and follow him into the true garden of paradise. <laughs>